We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Still in the series, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, beginning at the 15th verse. When you got it, let me know. Amen. Reading out of the ESV. It reads, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we are in desperate need of your help in order to comprehend the richness of your, your word. Pray that you will speak to us and open up our eyes to see what's being said and to perceive what's being written. Give us understanding and give us application prophetically so that we can apply the word of God to the aspect of our life that is heavy on us today. Edify us, enlighten us, empower us, equip us, and help us to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus, so that we might live a life that's pleasing to you. Help me in this time to preach your word with accuracy and with boldness and with power. We'll be mindful to give your name all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week we started a series titled The Helper, which is an in-depth series that's going to be pretty lengthy. It's talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This is going to be a little bit like, um, <clears throat> you know how they say with math, that you don't want to skip a certain part of math or it's going to make you um, behind on the next part. That's kind of how this series is. So I'm going to try to start every, uh, every Sunday with a bit of a review to kind of give us a refresher on what was talked about in the week previously because each message is going to build on each other so that by the time we're done, we'll have a robust and full, uh, complete understanding of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So let's do a little review. We can go ahead and put them slides up, T. It's what we learned so far. We learn that the Holy Spirit is who? He's God. How do we know that? Number one, because he's omniscient, which means that he's all-knowing. He's omnipresent, which means that he's everywhere at the same time. He's omnipotent, which means that he's all-powerful. He's eternal, which means that he doesn't have a beginning and does not have an end. He's called Lord, just as the Father in Jesus is called Lord, and he's explicitly called God in Acts chapter 5. You put all the data together, all those attributes can only apply to one being, and that is the Almighty God. So by process of elimination, we would have to conclude that the Holy Spirit is who? Let's go. Next slide. The Holy Spirit is a person. All right, he's not, um, as Jehovah's Witnesses would say, an active force 
who was some impersonal being who just goes around and does different operations like electricity. He's an actual personal being. How do we know that? Number one, he has emotions. Ephesians 4, Isaiah 63, talk about him being grieved, and he's grieved by our choices that we make. Number two, he has volition, which means he has a will. He can actually make choices. Um, an inanimate object can't choose to do anything, right? It's just there. But the Holy Spirit has volition. Next, he speaks. And when he speaks, he speaks intelligible words. He just, he does not gibberish, is not made up talk. He actually speaks in a way that people can understand him, which implies that he's a personal being. Last but not least, he can be lied to. And this list is not exhaustive, by the way. There's more stuff we could add, but just for the sake of time, we keep it brief. He can be lied to. In Acts chapter 5, we have an explicit example of Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit. Well, you can't lie to a wall, right? You can't lie to this mic in my hand, but you can lie to a living being. Amen? That's what we learned last week. Today, we're not going to talk about attributes so much. We're going to talk about, and this is beginning today and the subsequent, subsequent weeks, we're going to be talking about the operations of the Holy Spirit, the works and the operations of the Holy Spirit, how he functions in the life of the believer. So what I want to do today is I want to bring up, I want to highlight one of these functions, and then I'm going to give us three reasons why this function is important to us. I start here. In John chapter 14, Jesus says the following words. He says to his disciples, he says, I will pray to the Father, and he will send you another helper. He says, I will ask of my Father, and he will send you another helper. When he says, I will ask of my Father, Jesus is talking about the time after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, after his ascension to the right hand of the throne on high, he says, I'm going to ask my father and he's going to send you another helper. The word helper there is the Greek is parakletos, which gets transliterated into English as paraclete. And then we translate it as most translations would call it the helper. That's where we get the name of our series from. If you read in King James, it might say the comforter. Some translations might say the advocate. The word is very complicated in Greek, and it's hard to really get a full meaning on what that term means. But the general consensus is he's our helper, and all those other definitions that I gave flows out of him being the helper. Jesus says, I'm going to pray to my father, and I'm going to send you another paraclete, another helper. Now, when he says another, what does that imply? There must already be a helper present. He didn't say, I'm going to pray and God is going to send you a helper. He says, I'm going to send you another helper. That word means one of the same kind. Another of the same kind. Whoever this helper is, he's going to be very similar to the first helper who was Jesus himself. Jesus is walking with his disciples and he's serving as their helper. But he says, I got another helper coming for you. He's going to be like me, but he's distinct from me. That's a Trinity plug. The word helper means one who comes alongside. One who comes alongside to assist in some type of way. He says, I'm going to pray to the Father, and I'm going to send you a helper. The very next verse says this. He says, the world cannot receive him. 
because it has neither seen him or knows him. Then he says, but you know him, talking to his disciples, because he has been with you, but he shall be in you. Jesus says, whoever this helper is, when he comes, he's not going to just be among you like he is now. He's going to change his sphere of influence, and now he's going to actually live inside people. The word dwell there is interesting because it denotes residency. Why did Jesus use that word? Here's why, because he's talking to a bunch of Israelites who knows what he means. If you go to the Old Testament, we find in the book of Exodus that God told the Israelites through the prophet Moses, he says, I want you to build a tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, I want you to, do, I want you to build this, this box-like structure called the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, in this Ark, I want you to place inside of it the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. On top of the ark, I want you to build the likeness of the cherubim. These were the angelic beings, the the members of the heavenly host that had wings. And he says, you want to have one on the left, you want to have one on the right. And he says, you want their wings to touch each other. And he says, sitting above them, I want you to put the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, he says, I will dwell in your midst. So the tabernacle now becomes the the quote-unquote container of the manifestation of God's presence. The tabernacle is mobile, so it's a tent-like structure that can be moved from location to location. So when Israel is wandering through the wilderness, guess what they're taking with them? The tabernacle, then that means that God's presence is going wherever they're going. That's the tabernacle. God later tells the people of Israel, I actually want a permanent place of residency. I don't want to do all this moving around on wheels. So he raises up King Solomon to build him a temple. The temple now, which is known as Solomon's temple, it now becomes the container of the manifestation of God's presence the same way the tabernacle did. Israel fell in idolatry. The Ark of the Covenant was stolen The temple was burned to the ground and Israel was exiled to Babylon. There's no temple and there's again no place for God to rest his presence. Israel comes out of Babylon. God raises up Ezra and Nehemiah the priests. And under the leadership of King Cyrus, he sends out word for a new temple to be rebuilt. The temple is built. After it's built, it says the glory of Yahweh fills the temple once again. This temple is revised. It's then known as uh, Herod's temple. And this is the temple that stood when Jesus walked the earth. When Jesus walked the earth, he said something to his opponents one time. He says, you need to understand that something greater than the temple is here. You guys are obsessed with this grand temple and all its splendor. But he says, something greater, speaking of himself, something greater than the temple is present. Stick with me. I'm going somewhere. Jesus is crucified. When he's crucified, it says the veil that was in that temple was split. 
Then there was an earthquake and the grounds were shaken. Jesus then rise from the dead three days later. Between this period and the year 70 AD, God was doing something, but it's not explicitly mentioned in history, but it's mentioned in the scripture. In the year 70 AD, that temple that was built was destroyed by the Romans. Jesus predicted that this would happen in Matthew chapter 24, where he says, not one stone will be left upon another. The prophecy came to pass 40 years later where the Roman siege took place. They set the city of Jerusalem on fire and they tore down the temple. Once again, it appears as though there's no place for God's spirit to dwell. What people did not understand is that between the year of the resurrection and the year 70 when that temple was being destroyed, God had already begun creating a new temple. But this temple was not a temple made with human hands. It was the temple of human bodies. So you get the second Corinthians chapter six and Paul says this, your bodies are temples of the living God. Now, based on the biblical theological approach I just gave you, where I started from the beginning to explain what the temple was, we've already established that the temple is there to contain what? The presence of God himself. So if he says that your bodies are now the temple of the living God, what does he mean by that? Our bodies, the, the bodies of those who believe the truth, are now containers for the presence of the God of Israel. This does not make us God, just like that building wasn't made God because God dwelt there. Ain't no little God doctrine. Ain't no we, we gods in earth. Ain't no nation of Islam. Ain't none of that. There's one God, the God of Israel, and he chooses to make his abode in his people via the Holy Spirit. Today I want to talk about the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to explain what it is, and then I'm going to give you three reasons why it's important for us to know who he is and why he gave us this work. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now, let's just stop for a minute. It says that the people of Israel were in expectation, right? And it says they're looking at John <laughs> and they're pondering whether or not he's the Christ. In other words, they're looking at his ministry. They're looking at him baptizing people. They're looking at the fire that he's preaching with and they're like, this man got to be somebody special. We're introduced to this man named John. John is one of my favorite people in the Bible because there's so much mystery to him. He's a mysterious character. So much of what we know about John has to do with his ministry, but it has little to do with his origins. Makes him mysterious. We don't really know where John came from. He, he just pops up out of nowhere. Here's what we know about John. We know that he was a son of a father named Zechariah and a mother named Elizabeth. 
they were priests, or I should say his father was a priest. Let me ask my Bible scholars in the room. In order to be a priest, you have to be from what tribe? Levi. So we know now that John is a what? He's a Levite. So he comes from the same line of Moses and Aaron. He's walking in that, in, in that priestly lineage. He's born from a priestly household, and the scripture says that he will be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. Now, this is a unique brother right here. I, there's nobody else in the Bible that it says that about. It says that when he's conceived, the spirit of God is going to already have hold on him. But it doesn't tell us where he came from. Many people believe that he's a member or was closely associated with an ancient Israelite group called the Essenes. The Essenes were an ancient group uh, that were very mysterious. They lived a separatist life and they were known for ritual purification with water. When you read about John the Baptist, it says he's in the wilderness by himself. Right. And then it says that he's baptizing people. In water. So we don't have any hardcore facts, but in the academic realm, there is this theory that John was one of the Essenes. Now, the Essenes are a pivotal group in biblical history because it is from them that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead, not to get too technical, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are these ancient scrolls that were found in 1948, and it is our earliest Hebrew manuscripts. So before we got these English Bibles, we had all manuscripts. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the earliest Hebrew Bible we had was from like 1000 A.D. That's thousands of years removed from when it was written. So in 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And what they noticed is that they were dated to about 150 B.C. So what they did is they compared the Dead Sea Scrolls and they compared it to the Masoretic text that was found a thousand years later. And they say ain't nothing been changed. It's still fundamentally the same Hebrew Bible. So all this talk about the scripture has been changed. You go from one generation to the next and meaning is lost. That's totally false based on history. The Essenes were the ones who penned and copied the Dead Sea Scrolls. So people are thinking that John is one of them. Look at what it says about him. They, now they think he the Christ, right? Verse 16, John answered them all. Now <laughs> If this was us, we would have gave a totally different answer. So somebody pulled up on us like, yo, ministry so power, man. You, you like Jesus. We would have took that to our head. But look at what John say. I baptize you with water. But he who was mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Just peep the humility in this man's words. Filled with the spirit from his mama's womb, born through a priestly line, got all these disciples coming to him to be baptized. They think he's the Christ. He immediately shuts it down. He says, listen, I'm baptizing you with water. That's cool. My baptism is to point you to the Messiah. It is a baptism of repentance. All that is good. But he says, there's this other dude coming after me. And John says, he's mightier than I am. Now, all humans are equal to each other. No human can say another human is mightier than him because we all came from dust. John understands that whoever this dude is that's coming, he ain't like the rest of us. He says he's mightier than I. 
He says he's so mighty, I'm not even worthy to take the shoes off his feet. Now, what is it that makes this man mightier than John? I baptize with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Oh, man. To baptize means to immerse, to submerge, to overwhelm. That's what it means to baptize. John says, all God gave me was a ministry of baptism. My job is to take sinners who know they're sinners and to plunge them in this water as in commitment, an outward commitment that they're going to repent and turn to the Christ when he gets here. He says, that's all God gave me to do. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, pointing them to the Messiah. But when Jesus comes, he's going to do a baptism, a submerging, an overwhelming, a plunging, but not with water, with the Holy Spirit. This is John's way of describing what Jesus described in John 14 when he says, I'm going to pray and the Father's going to send you another helper. Same event, just different terminology. Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper. John says, what he's really going to do is baptize you with this helper. He's going to submerge you in the Holy Spirit. What he means by that is the Holy Spirit is going to come inside of you and permeate your being. But he also says, he's going to baptize you with fire. Now, this is a controversial passage because you have different interpretations on what it means. Some would argue that the fire here uh, is, a, is a sense of purification. You know, sometimes fire was talked about as a purification process. Metals in the ancient world was put through the furnace in order to burn off the impurities. So when he says that the Holy Spirit will baptize you with, uh, oh, God will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire, he's saying he's going to purify sinners. Now, that's a possible interpretation, but is it the proper interpretation? Others were connected to that, and they'll say, well, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, it says that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and there became tongues of fire resting on their heads, and they began to speak in other languages. And others would say, that's what Jesus is referring to. As intriguing as those theories are, I don't think that's what Jesus or what John is talking about when he said that. What does John mean when he says Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire if you're careful, look down at the next verse. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That word fire is used about 10 times, I believe, in the book of Luke. Every single time the word is used, with one exception, it's talking about fiery judgment. Every time fire is used in Luke's gospel. The only exception is in Luke chapter 22 where it says Peter was warming his hands by the fire. Every other time it's mentioned, it's a judgment, it's a judgment passage. In fact, if you got your Bible and you got it open to Luke, look up at verse 9 real quick. Now, this is John's sermon 
He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Then you get down to verse 17. He says, God is going to take the wheat, put him in safety, his barn, and that which is left over is going to be burned in fire. What does John mean? He says that when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize everybody. Believers will be baptized with his spirit. Unbelievers will be baptized with the fires of hell. That's what he meant when he said that. He is not talking about some mere purification process here. He's saying that before life is over, every human being will be baptized by Christ. Either you're going to be baptized willfully when he gives you the Holy Spirit, or you're going to be baptized involuntarily when he plunges you into the lake of fire. Isn't it interesting that hell is also called a lake? Baptism is submerging in water. Hell is called a lake. Perhaps that imagery is there to teach us that there's going to be a baptism in a different lake for every person who does not repent. There's going to be a baptism. But for those of us in this room who know the Lord Jesus, he's already baptized you with his spirit. His spirit lives inside of you. What are three benefits? And we to the house. Let me get Titus chapter three. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Let me read that again. He saved us, talking about Jesus, not because of works we did, not because we gave to the poor, not because we were good spouses, not because we were good friends, not because we came to church, not because we gave offerings, has nothing to do with salvation. He saved us not because of works, but according to his mercy, meaning that even if you were perfect, you still wouldn't be worthy of it. It was his mercy. That saved us. Now, how did he do it? By the washing. Baptism is what? Dipping in water, symbolizing purification. He says the Holy Spirit washed us of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Next verse. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul says that when the spirit of God was poured out on the church, he gave us the washing of regeneration. If you read a commentary or a systematic theology book or you go to seminary or anything like that, that's a word you're going to hear constantly. The doctrine of regeneration. What does it mean? To generate something means to bring it to life. To regenerate something means that to bring it to life again. When the Spirit of God was put on us, we can go back to Titus, when the Spirit of God was given to the church, Paul says God regenerated us. The first benefit of the Holy Spirit living inside of us is that he grants us the rebirth. Remember in John chapter 3, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus? Nicodemus says, What can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? 
Jesus says, are not you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Don't you know that no man can enter the kingdom unless he is born again? That's the doctrine of regeneration. He says you were born the first time by your mother. The problem is when you came through her, you were born in sin, shaping in iniquity. The book of Job says that no man born of woman can be pure. He says that if you are a descendant of Adam, you are naturally sinful in God's sight. This is what we call total depravity. You cannot please God in the flesh, but that's the situation we were born in. Spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1 says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, a dead man cannot have a relationship with a living God. So what does God have to do? He has to give you a new birth. Well, you're born the second time, but now you're no longer dead. You're alive spiritually. When God gives us the rebirth, here's what he does. He makes us a new creature. If we're a new creature, I mean, we're no longer the old creature. This means that whoever we were before Jesus has been crucified. And a new person has emerged through the Holy Spirit. So if we're new creatures, and the old creature used to live a certain way, if the old creature talked with profanity, if the old creature was sexually immoral, if the old creature was addicted to drugs and on alcohol and gossiped and had a bad attitude and mistreated other people, if that's the old creature, and the Spirit of God makes us a new creature, then how can we still walk like we're the old man who was crucified? God did not make us new for us to continue to live old. <laughs> I remember years ago, don't go listen to it. This is not a plug for secular music. I'm just making a point because y'all know I'm a hip-hop head. But I remember years ago, Jay-Z had a line about his wealth, and he was talking about the criticism that he get from his friends now that he's rich. And he says, uh, people say you changed. No, he's like, he say, people look at you strange. They say you change like I worked that hard to stay the same. Now, let's interpret that spiritually. <laughs> you get saved. Everybody look at you funny. You acting different now. You a holy roller now. You, you, you holier than thou now. You know, you, you one of them Bible thumpers now. And here's what we do. We start trying to compromise so we don't have to deal with that ridicule anymore. But what we should be saying is like, you think I've been through everything I've been through to stay the same as I was? You think I made these type of sacrifices to, to go back to where I was? You think Jesus hung up on that cross with all my drunken nights on his body? For me to stay the way I was, you better believe I'm going to act different. It's a blessing to have the Holy Spirit because he empowers you to live differently than you used to live. Now, I can't talk about it now because it's going to be later in the series. We got to talk about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Because a problem that Christians make is that we get saved and we think that everything is going to automatically change overnight. And then when it doesn't, we begin doubting our salvation. And now we're living in more sin because we feel like God ain't rocking with us anyway. We got to understand that salvation is immediate. Sanctification is a process. That's, that's in a couple weeks. 
Nonetheless, something better change. <laughs> if you're looking at your life and nothing is different, something wrong there. Said he made us a new creature. Let me get, um, I could go any direction with this. Let me get Romans chapter 2. What is the next work of the Holy Spirit? That's a blessing for us. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What's going on here? Remember, y'all, the New Testament is written by Jewish people, so everything they write has these Jewish undertones that if you're not familiar with the Old Testament or with Jewish history, it can sound weird to us. Here's what's going on. In Genesis 17, God calls Abraham, and he gives them him the covenant of circumcision. The covenant of circumcision was every male child born in your house must have the foreskin cut, circumcised. That's what it means to be circumcised. They, they got to have their foreskin removed because the other nations didn't do that. God says, I want my people, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, I want them to be separated from the other nations. So here's going to be an identifying marker. They're going to have foreskin. Israelites not going to do that. This means that every day a Jewish man is going to be reminded of who he belongs to. Every day he's going to look at his outward appearance and he's going to be reminded, I am part of the Abrahamic covenant. I am identified with the covenant people of Israel. That came by way of what? Circumcision. Now, Paul says, a Jew is one inwardly. In this chapter, he's talking about Jewish people who claim to belong to God because of their physical ethnicity. Paul wants them to know, if you don't believe Christ, you're a child of the devil anyway. None of that matters. But if you're a Jewish believer, he says, you have an inward circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Mm. He's saying the same way that God marked his people of Israel with physical circumcision. In the new covenant, God is marking his people with spiritual circumcision. This means that when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, guess what he's doing? He's the new identifying mark of who you belong to. It's not about physical circumcision anymore. It's about spiritual circumcision. Whenever we are circumcised spiritually, when God's spirit comes to live inside of us, it is our new mark of identity. Raise your hand if you work at a company where you need an identification card to get in. Okay. Melvin, what happens if you put up somebody else's identification card? You're not getting in. Most of us have worked those jobs. They give you an ID, and you can't walk into the company. You can't even get into the building unless you have an identifying mark proving that you work for that company. In the same way, God says, I'm giving you my spirit as the identifying mark that you belong to this company. You belong to this family. Without that identification card, you cannot lay any claim to this people group. The second blessing of having the Holy Spirit is that it is the means by God, by which God makes us his own. We don't belong to the devil. 
We don't belong to the world. We don't belong to demonic entities. We belong to the God of Israel. Let me prove that further. Let me get 1 John chapter 4. I just want to show it to you in multiple places so you can see that this is a consistent theme. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Let me get Romans 8 verse 9. Paul says, now listen, carefully look at what this man just said. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. To be in the flesh means to be an unbeliever. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You see how plain he put it? Either you have the spirit or you don't. But if you have it, you belong to him. If you don't, you're an alien. Now, there's a little sidebar in here I got to throw out there. Look carefully at the wording. The first half says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, right? But then he says, but if you don't have the spirit of Anybody catch that? Well, my apologies that you got to use that on the Jehovah Witnesses when they say Jesus ain't God. He says, first, the spirit of God, but he uses it interchangeably with the spirit of Christ because Paul is once again saying Christ is God. You don't have the spirit. You don't belong to him. Here's what all of us should do periodically through our life as believers. We should do spiritual wellness checks. You know how when you like you sick or when you're not sick, you take you're supposed to take. Make sure y'all get your annual checkups. Supposed to go to the doctor, get a physical. Why to make sure ain't nothing crazy going on that you can't really see. Make sure you're good, you're healthy. Paul wants us to have a spiritual wellness check. He calls it in the book of Corinthians. He says, "Examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith." What is he saying? We need to go through periods in our life where we ask ourselves this simple question. Do I have the spirit of God in my life? Because Paul says, if you don't, you don't belong to God. So we need to ask ourselves, do I, am I experiencing the work of the spirit in my life? What are some things we can look for? Am I feeling the grieving of the Holy Spirit when I sin against him? Do I feel led by the spirit? Do I feel like God is talking to me? Is he restraining me from the evil that I know I want to do in my heart? When somebody cut me off and I feel that word right on the tip of my tongue and you feel the spirit of God just grab your tongue real quick and say, you bet not say that. <laughs> Are we experiencing that? When we open up the word of God to read it, do we feel God's presence illuminating us so that we can perceive what's being read? Do we feel an inner witness of the spirit that we are his child? Do we feel like we have fruit of the spirit in our life? Not perfection, but fruit. Is there a gradual transformation that we're experiencing? If the answer to those questions is yes, then guess what? You have a spirit and praise God. But if your answer is no. That means we need to go to God in repentance of our sins and tell him, Jesus, save me because I need your spirit. 
One more, and we out. Let me get um, Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Y'all know I had to say this one for last. This, 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 this the one right here. He says, when you heard the word of truth, let me go back to 13. When you heard the word of truth, that's the gospel. And you believe, you ain't just hear it and ignore it. You believed it. Something happened. You were sealed. Now, when you think of a seal, you think of something that's encapsulated in something else, right? He says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He says, not only did the Spirit come inside of you, but when he came inside of you, he sealed you. What does that mean? Verse, next verse. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That word for guarantee is found multiple times in Paul's writings. It's, a, it's an interesting Greek word. It literally means, actually, let me put them definitions on the screen for you. <laughs> Payment of part of a purchase price in advance. First installment. Deposit, down payment, a pledge. Raise your hand if you own a home. Before you bought that house, you had to give a what? That down payment is letting the bank know that the rest of the money is coming. <laughs> I know this house don't cost 3000 FHA hooked me up. Thank God for them, but that ain't the full price for this house. The house, 80K, all I got is 3K. But I'm going to give you this down payment to let you know, month by month, I'm going to make payments until this house is paid off and I have full ownership of it. Paul says that the Holy Spirit was our down payment. Except we didn't make the payment. God made the payment for us. He says that when you were born again, God says they're going to live 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 more years in this life. They're going to go through trials, tribulations, temptations, and struggles. They're going to doubt their faith. They're going to have wrestles, wrestlings in their sanctification and all type of problems. They're going to go through hard times before they reach the eternal kingdom. So here's what I'm going to do for them. I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit as a reminder the eternal kingdom is coming. You're going to be tempted to walk away. You're going to be tempted to fall away. You're going to be tempted to live a life of sin. But just be reminded that I've given you a down payment on the inside. So no matter what you face in this life, you will obtain eternal life. It is the down payment. It is the proof that the rest of the payment is coming. This is why we believe you can't lose your salvation at this church. I done read the theology books. 
I didn't debate it with the people who said you can, and I'm sorry, I ain't convinced. I'm not buying it, because if we could lose it, then why call it a guarantee? That ain't a guarantee then, if it's contingent upon what I do. That's called a contingency plan. It's only a guarantee if God says, don't matter what you do, because I've already paid it all for you. We're not Roman Catholics. We don't believe we got to go to purgatory and pay our own sin and then hope he let us in. We're not Muslims that say he's going to weigh our good deeds against our bad deeds and hopefully the good deeds. That ain't what we are. We're Christians. We believe that God saved us once for all. The life we live is important because it's the evidence that we have the spirit. So if you live in a life of a demon, something is wrong. But if you live in the life of the Lord, it's the evidence that you belong to him. God walked through the fire by himself. We, we weren't crucified for our sins. He was. He paid it all. Sin debt paid in full. And he graciously gave us the down payment. So he says, every time you sin and you feel that grief, down payment. <laughs> Every time you want to feel sin to go do something sinful and God restrains you, you should think down payment. Every time you praying and you feel that that intercessor coming alongside to pray for you, come on now. Whenever you feel them words coming out your mouth in the language you ain't understand, that's a down payment. Whenever you have prophetic visions of the Holy Spirit, that's a down payment. Whenever you experience the move of God in your life via the Holy Spirit, we should think down payment. It ain't going to always be like this. One day he going to bring me safely into his kingdom. One day he going to wipe away every tear from my eye. One day I'm not going to have this sickness in my body. One day I'm not going to have trials and tribulations. I got a down payment. And God is going to finish what he started. Let's stand to our feet and pray. Father God, we thank you for the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you've saved us and you've washed away our sins apart from our works. God, we praise you that you've paid our sin debt in full and got the nerve to give us a guarantee that we're going to one day inherit the kingdom. We're going to behold you in your glory. We're going to walk amongst the heavenly beings. We're going to be in perfect health. We're going to know you the way you've known us. Our questions are going to be answered. We get to walk with you through eternity as you reveal the mysteries of your glory to us. You're going to give us a kingdom. You said you're going to give us mansions. You're going to give us joy. And we have a guarantee and we say thank you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. You didn't have to give us your spirit. But you chose to. And we say, thank you, God. Father, would you enable your people in this room to fully grasp and comprehend what what we all have in you? That it's not just an intellectual doctrine or theologically stimulating statement, but that it's a truth that we feel on the inside and we can understand the blessing we have, oh God. You've made us a new creature. Help us to live like new creatures. 
You've given us a mark of identity. Help us to be reminded and to live as those who are a part of your group. You've sealed us with your Holy Spirit, which means we cannot be lost if we know you. May we never take your grace for granted. May we never continue in sin that grace may abound. May we never mock you. May we never play games with the Holy Spirit. But God, may we truly honor you with our life so that when we mess up, we're reminded of the down payment and that you've sealed us. We don't want to take your grace for granted. We want to honor it. But we need you to be able to do it. So, Father, would you do it for us? God, I pray for anybody in this room who does not know you, who does not have your spirit. Your message to them is clear. You love them. You gave your only son to die on their behalf so that they might have life. So if you're in this room and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what you need to know. He was, he, he was crucified on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He was virgin born. He confirmed his identity by performing miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. Your sin was nailed to his cross. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, proving that he was the eternal son of God. Over a period of 40 days, he appeared to his disciples, proving that it was not a hallucination, but that he really did raise. He ascended into the right hand of the father, patiently awaiting his return. And he is asking you right now, would you repent of your sins? Would you acknowledge your sin before a holy God and would you repudiate it? And would you put your faith in Jesus that he died on your behalf? Would you trust him all, trust him with it all? And if you do that, the Bible says right now, he'll send his Holy Spirit into your heart and you'll have a guarantee. And he'll empower you to walk in the way that he wants you to walk. Father, save anybody in this room who doesn't know you. And be patient with us. And we'll be mindful to give your name all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.